Hello and welcome to Keanu Club, like a cool breeze over the mountains. This is episode 31, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, from 1993. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. With us today, host of Now and Again podcast, co-host of Monkey Club, Keanu Club semi-expert, Chris Mattiello. Hello, Chris. Hello, how are all you guys? Worse than I was before I watched this movie. <laughs> Even Joey gets the blues. Even I get the blues. This movie's directed by Gus Van Sant, who just did My Own Private Idaho, which I don't know that I love. I mean, we talked about it on there, but like, it's, it's a well-done movie, and like it actually tells a story. This I don't even know how to describe the mess that this movie is. I think you could kind of say it's the female version of My Own Private Idaho in a way, in that it explores lesbianism as much as the first one explored homosexuality between men, in a way. But... What kind of struck me is there's a guy directing this movie, and but I just felt like this needed more of a woman's touch. It's just a mess. It's based on a novel, also written by a guy, and the guy who narrates this movie is the guy who wrote the novel. So that's a little bit of a twist, a little bit of behind-the-scenes trivia for you. Very surprising to me. I could have, would not have expected that. Yeah. It just seems like there's no women involved behind the scenes at all. Right. See, this is the kind of novel that comes from this long line of post-beat era weed dad novels, is what I think they're best described as. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Wild Animus, terrible, terrible books like that, um, that you can find in like every thrift store in Portland and Seattle. They're just weed dad books, and the guy who wrote this is definitely a weed dad. Uh, Actually, might be more of an LSD dad. I'm not sure. I'm reading a bath on Wikipedia. His dog's name is Bellini Tomato Titanium. Of course it yeah, is. Yeah, his kids' names are Rip Kirk and Fleetwood. Okay. Picture's becoming clear. This guy is exactly... I'll just get it out there. I hate hippie culture. <laughs> well, this is like commune cult hippie stuff. Right. It's the kind of people who had the money to go off to, like, hate Ashbury in the height of the hippie days and then became investment bankers and moved up to Sausalito and ruined America. And I hate those kind of people more than anything. And that's, I feel like, was the target audience for this book. And then 20 years later, his friend Gus Van Sant decided, yeah, fuck it, let's make this movie. And it was just so out of its era and anachronistic. And the book was probably unfilmable. And we have a movie that is unwatchable. It's so strange because this feels like a coming-of-age movie for girls to watch, in a way. Like, I am not, we are not the demographic, the target audience at all, I feel. So, it's shocking to come to find out that so many guys were responsible behind the scenes. What was Penelope Spheres doing between Wayne's World and Beverly Hillbillies? You know, what was Amy Heckerling doing after Clueless? I mean, there are women who could have handled this material and made it work. I feel like there's something here that could work, but they have no idea what they're dealing with that's just how it comes across to me it's just real weird from start to finish in the first five minutes of this movie i realized and i don't know if this is like the best way to describe it but i think it's a way to describe it this is like a real low low rent coen brothers movie like things are weird there's like weird character choices and weird names and it's everything that people like hate about coen brothers movies but like with nothing that they like like quentin tarantino has uma thurman in kill bill and he loves feet and we see lots of close-ups of her feet like if quentin tarantino had a hand fetish this is the movie that he would make that 
Uma Thurman, we haven't even mentioned, Uma Thurman's got giant thumbs for no reason, and that makes her really good at hitchhiking, even though, because aside from the fact that she's, you know, an attractive 23-year-old blonde girl trying to hitchhike her way across America, apparently that's not enough to get people to stop, because when she gets her thumb surgery, she's not able to hitchhike effectively anymore. It's people seeing her thumb and stopping as opposed to seeing her. Like, everything about this is just crazy and stupid in, like, really irritating ways. Yeah, I almost thought the beginning they might have been going for some kind of John Waters vibe, but there's this really bright pop art aesthetic to the look of the film, you know? It's very vibrant. It's got like a... um, I was thinking Andy Warhol at times even more than once because Keanu apparently is like part of the warehouse gang in this movie. (laughs) When she goes to New York City, that also reminded me of it. But yeah, that whole thing with Uma and the Thumbs, yeah, you're right. Like, it just totally feels superfluous but they dwell on its importance till no end. And I just don't understand it. The major note is, why are her thumbs so big? Does it matter? Yeah, it also gave me Coen Brothers vibes. The beginning, to me, felt like parts of the Hudsucker Proxy. And it's uh, not exactly its style, but it's like in its depiction of the big city and, and the way the characters were really over the top. And this movie, I mean, again, probably just never should have been filmed, but this movie needed the mind of like a Terry Gilliam and not the mind of a director who was given carte blanche with Psycho and made it shot for shot, but added (laughs) jerking off. Needed someone who has a little bit more uh, creativity, I think. It just feels like he's been there, done that with this movie. I don't feel like he's putting in a lot of extra effort because since we watched My Own Private Idaho, I watched Drugstore Cowboy with uh, Matt Dillon, and, and that movie's a lot of fun. I feel like you totally get his sensibilities and it's a really good one of his films but here it just feels like he's not all there like it just feels like one of those movies where everyone has a different idea of what they want like it's just all up in the air and it it doesn't work as a cohesive story narrative or film or any of that so there's the one scene in the movie the one sequence of scenes that we'll talk about that's the part with keanu that's the best part of the movie not just because keanu's in it because crispin glover has insane hair but because like there's like a different kind of energy to those but the thing that sticks out to me is that uma was like like when she's narrating or you know she's talking or saying with somebody i don't remember about what she experienced there and she's like i've never seen anything like it and I was like, oh, then I guess you haven't seen My Own Private Idaho, where we have that scene that's basically the same, like, they're in that hotel room, right, with Udo Kier, and he's being, like, really creepy and weird, you know, or you haven't seen Blue Velvet, like, it's all, like, it's, like, iteration, it's, like, a copy of a copy of a copy. All right, let's go to this apartment and just have a bunch of weird characters. We talked about, in My Own Private Idaho, how that felt like a ripoff of Blue Velvet, and about how he changed things, like, he changed what he was singing into to make it not seem like Blue Velvet. This seems like a ripoff of that, which seems like, you know, it's all just like, I don't know, it's it's like he's running out of ideas and just like, instead of trying to come up with cohesive whatever, he's just like, let's just add more weirdness. Yeah, there's definitely that weird upon weird until it sort of stacks so high that it topples. <laughs> yeah, and I kind of wish New York City was the whole movie. You know, I, I, if they established that she was from middle America, so a cowgirl with her style and then she's in the big city i thought that was gonna be the movie and when we're introduced to keanu and his crew i'm like oh yeah the whole movie this is gonna be awesome literally like five minutes later he's he's gone and she's out of new york and she goes to the hippie commune out in cowboy land 
Well, I was expecting her to leave. I don't know why I was expecting her to leave. Maybe because we can ha- we can't have anything nice. Like this is why we can't have nice things because in this movie we don't deserve it. But she left, and I was like, please go back to New York. Please go back. Like I just want to see those guys again. And then spoiler, we never see Keanu again. That he's in the movie for four minutes, maybe. He's supposed to go on a date with her. He has an asthma attack. He can barely breathe. They bring him back to this apartment. She follows them back, and the first time she's ever been in a cab, this woman who's crossed the continent 400 times but has never been in a taxi cab. Like, what does that say about life? And then they go back to the apartment, and then Keanu's sort of getting medical treatment, and then she falls asleep, and then she wakes up to Crispin Glover and Sean Young, like, having sex basically on her. Like, and then Keanu's not in the movie again. And so to watch it for what we're watching it for is pointless, because he's not great. I mean, he's like, he's okay. Like, if if there was more for him to do, I think that character would be interesting. But he's given, like, nothing to do. It almost seems like it's, like, a favor to Gus Van Sant after casting him in my own private Idaho. Oh, yeah, I'll be this part in your movie. I'll draw some people out to the movie. Whatever. I want to ask you guys a question, because I imagine we're going to cover some plot points, but I don't know if it's remotely plausible to go scene by scene in this movie, because I don't know what happened at any point in this movie. What do you think this movie is about? It's about smelly lady parts. I mean, you're not wrong. I definitely got a very strong feminist vibe from this film. Like I said, like I think that this could be appealing if the right people were behind the material, but I don't know. It's just strange that you have a man directing this female movie, you know? It's just like that male gaze does not belong behind the camera here. I just get so many mixed messages. I'm not sure what exactly this movie is about, to be quite honest. Yeah, I would guess it was trying to be feminist in some way, but it's feminist in the most base kind of like smash the patriarchy, man. Like that is literally the depth that this movie has. And I guess it's so progressive that it's got a character named the chink (laughs) gross played by Japanese man, Pat Morita. And he's even the character itself is Japanese, but they call him that anyway. I don't know if that's supposed to be tongue in cheek. I don't know. I don't, this movie broke me, I think. I don't understand anything they were trying to do. You know what really started, like, I was already confused, and then Joaquin Phoenix's sister shows up, and she's basically girl Joaquin Phoenix. And I'm, like, losing my mind how much they look alike. It was so, it just took me out of the movie entirely, as little as I was in it already. I was trying to engage. Believe me, I was like, I wanted to know what this was about, what was going on. You know, I even at one point toward the very end, I got a glimmer of something that could have been when they're on the ranch and they're holding off the cops because they've what, they've sort of stolen the whooping crane? You know, that whole endangered thing? They didn't steal it. The cranes hung out at the lake. They changed the migration patterns by feeding the birds peyote or whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't even know what they were doing. I thought they were just trying to protect them at some point, and the government wasn't letting them. But there was one moment that I got a vibe where I was like, this could have worked, maybe. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't work. I feel like the problem with this is that it wants to be like this coming-of-age movie because Uma's this 23-year-old girl who's literally carrying her way across America and sort of trying to find herself. And, you know, like you were saying, it's her in a big city, like it's a cowgirl in a big city and then a cowgirl back on a ranch and who knows what. But then, like, it's... Like, there's, like, I think... not 
maybe not an important message, but there's like a story to be told there. There's like a cool, like it could be like a character piece. And then they just surround it with like all this insanity. Like Rain Phoenix's name is Bonanza Jellybean because why not? And Pat Morita plays the chink. And then there's just like everything, like there's John Hurt in drag as the Countess. Like there's just all these things that it's like Gus Van Sant's just like basically throwing everything at the wall, like throwing the kitchen sink at the wall, whatever the mixed metaphor I want to make is. And just saying like, we're going to try to make everything bizarre and surreal and funny because we can. And you know, if you don't like it, you're going to like a lot of other stuff because there's so much fun stuff to like in here. The one scene that I loved I think just because it was so dumb and weird is that Uma Thurman kind of, I guess, falls in love with Keanu in that one hour that they spend together. And then she goes out hitchhiking again and she's like laying on a log on the side of the road and she's touching herself. And then she's looking up into the sky and Keanu's face is in the clouds, like just like, you know, superimposed on the clouds. And it's so weird and I liked it because it was Keanu and then you know that's gone and then there's just nothing like that like I don't know what the point I'm making is I liked that because it was dumb but if it wasn't Keanu I'd be like oh here's another stupid thing in this movie I think you're totally right because why does she even go to New York City the Countess could have told her to go to the ranch anytime anywhere but she goes to New York City and encounters Keanu and he's with like Carol Kane Ed Begley Jr. Chris Glover Sean Young I mean he's rolling deep with weirdos so I definitely thought they were going to show up at the ranch at some point toward the third act like i was absolutely sure i was like she's in love with him she's gonna experience you know these women as well but even roseanne told her as the psychic in the beginning there'll be men and women in your life so i was for sure like she's gonna settle down with keanu at some point on the ranch but no like they the, how great would that have been though if the big city came out there and you had ed bigley jr and crispin glover trying to like ride a horse or something yeah. that would chase a whooping crane you know that would have been awesome it might have saved the movie for me and maybe it's just because ed begley was there but i i feel like sean young in this movie looks a lot like parker posey she kind of has that energy like that weirdo just like like i i thought it was her because it looks like her and she's also acting like parker posey i googled parker posey sean young and there's just one picture that some dude like stitched the two of them together like just side by side headshots but like nobody else on the internet is talking about how they're the same person maybe because nobody saw this movie but like Imagine if you had an apartment with Keanu and Crispin and Ed Begley and, like, almost Parker Posey and you have Uma there. Like, there's all sorts of weird stuff there. Hang out there for 20 minutes or half an hour or have her go back or have them come out. Like, don't just set up the most promising thing in the movie and then go out west and then have her talk to Bonanza Jelly Beans about, like, the mythos of the cowgirl. Like, who cares? Has there ever been a movie with this deep of a cast and this much waste oh probably i feel like oh heather graham just playing the background wait where is she in this movie yeah, she's, one of the she's literally a background actress she's just hanging out in the background she's in drugstore cowboy she's really good in that and really young i think that's even i think that might be post license to drive but yeah it totally wasted here i mean there's a couple people that i should have noticed in this movie i didn't i didn't realize it was roseanne Barr because i did everything i could to not actively watch this movie because i was like ugh. Grace Zabriskie is Uma's mom, who's been in stuff. Heather Graham's in the background. Udo Kier is in this movie, apparently, somewhere. Supposedly, River Phoenix is in this movie somewhere as, like, an uncredited background role or something. You know, he died, I guess, well before the movie was made, but I don't know how he weaved him in, but there's a rumor that he's in the movie. It feels like a giant in-joke that I don't get. Like, the writer of the book and Gus Van Sant stayed up 
for like a weekend and just, you know, bonded over this story and we're laughing their asses off and we're like, man, we're going to sell this in the room and we're going to make this movie and everyone's going to think like we're hilarious. <laughs> and it's just like the flattest thing we've seen so far, you know, like it's flat. There's nothing to rile me up ever. And, you know, I would sure I'd believe their feminist manifesto if I felt like they believed it themselves, but they clearly seem to just be reading their lines willy-nilly without any real sort of gusto or any of that. It almost feels like just what he's showing should be enough, but there's not enough information. I mean, just because Uma has these giant thumbs doesn't mean she's a character. It doesn't mean anything. And the dialogue is, like, I, I understand each individual word they are saying, but when you put them in the order that they do, with this like weird weed dad post beat era pseudo hippie philosophy that every character is just the author spewing a polemic. It's fucking intolerable. Nothing makes sense. There was never a point where I knew what anyone was doing or saying. I had to use context so many times. I don't understand. I saw it and I took it in and I got nothing out of it. I hate this movie. I have quotes written down, nothing like pretentious, but things that just didn't make sense to me. Like, when I was younger, I hitchhiked 127 hours without stopping. But like, what does that mean? Because like, if you're in a car, you're not really, I guess you're hitchhiking, but like, you're riding in a car. Like, that's not, like, what Like what does that mean? Or later, you know, when she leaves Keanu, she's like, my thumbs hurt. My thumbs, they get stiff and sore. Like, okay. Known as the chink, though apparently he was Japanese-American. Well, then don't call him the chink. When she's by Pat Morita by the fire he just says, ha ha, ho ho, he he, and then they kiss. Like, apparently that's like an aphrodisiac or something. She's with that doctor who performs surgery on her, and he's talking about the privileges of the thumb. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. I just don't understand anything that's in this movie. I think this is the origin story for every manic pixie dream girl archetype. Like, this is the background story. They all get, they all just come together on a ranch, and all of these manic pixie dream girls bloom. It's like 30 intolerable, like fix your life via weird, backwards, quirky philosophy people. But instead of one of them, there's like 30 of them interacting. And now I'm dead. Yeah, it's just so unbelievable to me that they would all think and act like a collective. Is that the point? Is that they are of one mind, but they feel like they're individuals? Who knows? Maybe. I'm just grasping for straws. The one thing about this movie I really annoyed me and pissed me off the most is they set the thing up with her thumbs that they are maybe kind of magical. She Maybe she, like, can stick her thumb out and an airplane will, will turn its course. You know what I'm saying? Or, like, an animal or something. And then they drop all that shit. Like, she cuts her damn thumb off, for Christ's sakes. And if the movie wasn't uneven already, it's super uneven when... You know, you look at her and she's got one giant thumb and one small thumb. Like, it's just ridiculous. Like, what What are they trying to say about that? Beats me. Yeah, like, she struggles with the hitchhiking, but, like, just use your other thumb. I found myself wanting so much more of the first ten minutes of this movie. Because the first ten minutes is this baby who's born with these giant thumbs. And this loving but overprotective mother who's, like, she takes her to the doctor and is like, Hey, doc, if you ever come across anyone else with messed up hands, you, you let me know. We could, we could put them together. And she takes her to Roseanne, who is a, uh, a psychic, and asks her to read her palms, and she's disgusted by the giant thumb. I just, I thought, like, this magical realism, Matilda-esque movie about this girl with giant thumbs had potential. And then I like Uma Thurman. I really do. Even in, like, 
you know, Batman and Robin, where everyone says it's one of the worst movies ever made, I think she really gets what she's doing there. She's really camping it up and doing, like, 69 Batman. I don't know what she's doing in this movie. Her accent, every time she said New York City, I could only think of that old salsa commercial. New York City? It's just, it's disgraceful. She's terrible in this movie. Apparently... Jodie Foster wanted the lead part in this movie. I can't imagine anybody wanting to be the lead in this movie, but apparently Jodie Foster wanted to be the lead. I don't know why he chose Uma over her. Would that have been better? Probably, Yeah, right? I think so. I mean, knowing now Jodie Foster, she's, she came out, right? So knowing that I think that she would have a better understanding of the character. To all of my knowledge, Uma Thurman's straight. She's been married to Ethan Hawke once. She has a couple of children. So I actually think that that would have worked a lot better, to be honest. I also agree that I think this should have been a lot more of the little girl. You know, we should have stayed with her and seen her hitchhike and her adventure. And then, you know, half hour, second act it, then we get grown up Uma Thurman. And I also feel she's not giving her all here. Or if she is, she's playing it the wrong way uh, the one thing i did like was she's wearing a yellow jumpsuit kind of so it kind of reminded me of kill bill and then i was like oh maybe i'll put on some kill bill after this wipe my mind apparently the keanu role was originally cast to gary oldman so a little bit of a dracula crossed path there madonna was originally cast as dolores del ruby who's the lorraine brocco role elizabeth taylor and lily tomlin were both considered or offered the role that Angie Dickinson played. So, like, there's a lot of big names that could have been in this movie, and I just feel like every decision Gus Van Sant made here was just the wrong one. Yeah, Lorraine Bracco, she looks amazing. I'm not going to say her performance is amazing in this, but she looks great. She's awesome, and aside from Goodfellas, the only other movie I really know her from is uh, The Dream Team, and then, of course, The Sopranos, that she became Dr. Milfi. But, again, like we were saying earlier, just a just a wasted talent here like she's so capable of a lot more and and she's one of the few people i feel maybe knows that this is a wreck and she's all over the map in a way that kind of works more than everybody else i almost feel like she's made a couple more choices than everyone else and stuck with them i guess the one thing that i do want to say is pretty good i don't think it's good i don't know how to say this but this is rain phoenix's first movie And she basically is sort of, like, aside from Uma, kind of the star. And I think she's pretty good. I mean, she comes from a family, obviously, of actors. And this was right after River died. But, like, I think she's pretty good for this being her first movie because she's given, like, a lot here. I mean, I don't know if she's necessarily great in the movie, but, like, she sort of holds her own. And I don't like, she's not the worst thing in this movie by far. Yeah, I don't think she is either by any means. But, like I said earlier, I was so distracted by... Like, is she a Joaquin Phoenix? Are they twins? Because I swear to God, like, I couldn't get over that. And she is fine and, and everything. I mean, that's not saying too much in this movie, but she does she does feel comfortable, at least. Like, I don't get the sense that she's struggling with what she's doing, but I also didn't really get the sense that she was doing all that much. But she's fine. Considering her character's name is Purple Monkey Dishwasher or whatever, and... Bonanza Jelly Bean. And she has to give the worst monologues and possibly ever she makes chicken salad out of chicken shit she's the only person in this movie that i feel like i don't even want to say gets it because i think people were directed to act that way i think crispin glover was pretty damn good for his short role too but he just it's not hard to tell crispin glover hey be a creep and yeah he's gonna pull that off just about every time yeah ray phoenix i've never seen her before seemingly from her filmography i'll never see her again and that's i guess a little bit unfortunate but yeah you know i agree she 
was the one borderline redeeming quality of this movie. I'm sorry that I'm sighing while you're talking, but her name, her birth name is Rain Joan of Arc Phoenix. Yeah, speaking of hippie families with terrible names. She's two years older than Joaquin. She was born in 72. He was born in 74. River was born in 1970. Uh, so he was even older than her. They have two sisters, Liberty and Summer, who are both younger. Apparently she was she was in one other movie before this, this movie called Made to Order with Ali Sheedy, where she was credited as Rainbow Phoenix. And I was like, is that her name? And no, it's not her name. She just, I guess, was going by Rainbow. So, I mean, this movie is dedicated to River, and it's introducing, sort of, you know, like introducing Domino. This is introducing Rain. Uh, but I don't think we're ever going to cross paths with Rain again. I don't think... But we did cross paths with Crispin Glover before in Keanu Club on River's Edge, where he gave one of my favorite performances of his, maybe even of the supporting actors in Keanu Club so far. His performance in River's Edge is worth watching that movie for. Like, this whole movie is weird, but, like, his weirdness, like, there's an energy and like, you know, he was in a couple Cage Club movies, like him as the bowler, like that sort of yuppie bowler in Racing with the Moon. He was a Gatsby. I mean, everything that he's in, I mean, he's sort of like the, the through line. He's like the glue that keeps all these podcasts together because he's just in all these movies for one scene. And it's just like, who is that guy with the crazy, crazy comb over? There's almost never a time I'm not happy to see Crispin Glover show up in something. I mean, most people know him as McFly, and I think that's his most normal. I think that was even like director mandated because he wasn't invited back for Back to the Future 2. But even in tiny roles, like in Friday the 13th Part 4, you know, in those movies, the dead meat are just dead meat. But he is a memorable, like he's memorable as that garbage role. And that's admirable. He's the best part of those Charlie's Angels movies. He made the terrible Willard remake, like reasonably watchable once. Like, I like seeing Christmas Glover show up. I really do. Like I was thinking as we were watching this, or as I was watching this, that I want to do like a Crispin Glover podcast, but like... Can you imagine how many terrible movies he's probably in that he's in for one scene and then he's gone and then you're stuck with the rest of the movie? Like, I feel like when Keanu shows up, because Keanu's like fifth build in this, you would expect him to be back. And so there's sort of in that in the back of your mind, there's like a hope that he'll be back. I feel like with Crispin Glover, like he just might not come back. You just see him on screen. You see him as Dell in Wild at Heart and just he's just gone. Like, you know, that character's not coming back. So he'd be a difficult one to do. But I, I'm more than happy to cross paths with him every time that he comes around. Yeah, he's almost like the ultimate walk on role, right? Like he'll just be there for half a day, walk on, do a scene that's hidden somewhere within the cut of the movie. <laughs> if you it's like, where's Waldo? Where, where's Crispin? Except that he's once he's on screen, he's impossible to miss. Unlike Waldo, who's tricky to find sometimes. <laughs> Speaking of weird cuts of the movies, I was doing some research about this, and I found Roger Ebert's review of this, because as I was discussing with Joey in the green room, I wanted to see if he made a pun about giant thumbs up or thumbs down, because he is one of the greatest film writers of all time. He, uh, he did not, because he's a, a class act. Uh, he hated this movie, and he said, I found a clip of Siskel and Ebert talking about it, uh, they both hated it, and he said that he initially saw cut of this that was about 15 minutes longer at the Toronto Film Festival and apparently the reaction was so bad that they panicked and re-edited it down and the cut he saw was 15 minutes and mercifully shorter but even more incomprehensible so there you go there was there was a lot on the cutting room floor even cowgirls get the blues turns out to be all frosting and no cake all oddity little substance with each character more outlandish than the last 
I think the world has moved past this story. I think we can accept women living on their own together. So this story needs to take these characters, these fresh characters, and take us someplace fresh and provocative. The novel was written 18 years ago. For this film to work, I think the story had to be updated. I can't recommend even Cowgirls get the blues, and I'm surprised because this is a filmmaker I, I really I like. either. The one thing that I liked in the movie was the way that Rain Phoenix photographs. I think mm -hmm. that in a different movie, she could be a very interesting actress. Yeah. This movie is a complete disaster. I saw it last September at the Toronto Film Festival. It had its world premiere. It was supposed to open in another two weeks. The audience sat there in stunned silence. Yeah. They walked out with their eyes on the ground. The studio realized they had a disaster on their hands, and they yanked it from release, re-edited it. I've seen it now a second time. It's a little shorter. It's completely incomprehensible. You sit there wondering. You, not only don't you comprehend the story, but you don't comprehend the purpose of the story. Yeah, this movie made $2 million on an $8 million budget. I don't know how this movie cost $8 million. I guess those thumb prosthetics, that wriggling thumb on the tray after they cut it off was maybe a million dollars. Who knows what that was? But as like a 23% of Rotten Tomatoes, like this was like a critical and commercial bomb. So the fact that Gus Van Sant ever got to do anything else again after a movie this bad is sort of surprising. Did he do To Die For after this? And then he had Goodwill Hunting down the pike. So I think that pretty much resurrected or well, Goodwill Hunting like kinda seems like it saved his career in a way. Like there's nothing stylistically bizarre about that movie and it kinda showed that he could just play nice and do a normal film. And then ever since then he's he's done milk, he's gone on, he's He's still around. The next handful of movies he did... Also, why is he credited as Gus Van Sant Jr.? Like, where'd that come from? He's also Gus Van Sant Jr. in Drugstore Cowboy. But the next movie he did right after this was two years later. He did To Die For. Then he did a couple shorts. Then he did Goodwill Hunting. Then he did Psycho. Then Finding Forrester, Jerry Elephant. So, I mean, he never really had... I mean, aside from Psycho, that's not even worth getting into. I mean, he doesn't do, like, another movie like this. Like, I don't know where this came from. I don't understand. Like, Chris, do you find anything about, like, why he took this? Oh, I really like Elephants. No, I will say that. Oh, but I, I actually... Oh, Elephants, great. Yeah, he's good. No, I'm just saying, like, all these other movies that he did are good. Like, Goodwill Hunting is well-made, and Finding Forrester, and Jerry, and Elephants, great. He's apparently friends with Weed Dad author Tom Robbins. They're friends, apparently. So this was not nepotism, I guess, but whatever the friends, the, the, the buds, the, the Weed Dad version of that is... Riding on coattails. Yeah, pretty much. This the book is a cult book. It's not again. It's not kind of like the ones I knew before. I don't. When was it written? Seventy-six. So it's a couple of years. It's like a a cover of of like a you know like an on the road, but ten years too late and way shittier. Well, this definitely doesn't feel like it takes place in nineteen seventy-six, and maybe that's part of the problem too. I don't think this movie is going to do anything for you one way or the other, aside from maybe not watch more with Gus Van Sant movies or. There's nothing in here of any kind of strong conviction one way or the other. Everything that all the messages they're making seem like such a farce and seem like such a over-the-top cliche that it's hard to take anything that they say or do seriously. Yeah, there is a scene in this movie where a bunch of cowgirls arrive at a party being thrown by a snooty rich woman and John Hurt in Rainbow Face or whatever it is that, that he's supposed to be doing, it's gross. The Countess. It's just terrible. It's absolutely the worst fucking thing. The cowgirls pull down their pants and expose their vaginas and walk towards them, basically thrusting their vaginas at them, and that terrifies and appalls this crowd of people. And that is a But for the purpose of, like, dispensing an odor. Yes, this is a major plot point of this film. Well, because the other thing that we didn't mention is that 
Uma Thurman is a model, and she's been a model all of her life, and the product that she's most famously associated with was the Yoni Yum Feminine Hygiene Dew from 1965 to 1970. So basically a douche, right? I don't... It's it just... And the ranch is named after a douche as well. Shocking, you know, we're shocking you. Breaking taboos. Are you uncomfortable yet? The thing that I read, I think it was on Wikipedia, about this movie was about how they, he wanted to be, like, important, like, to, like, have, like, all these, like, shocking things, these taboo things. But it's done, like, in this way that's not going to get anything accomplished. Like, I feel like if you wanted to have gay society be more accepted, like, a movie like My Own Private Idaho that's, like, thoughtful and sort of tender, you know what I mean? Like, that, it's more real, and it's, there's just more to it than this. Like, this is just, like, it's almost like this is a reaction to people. Like, it almost feels like... Gus Van Sant hates the women's movement and it's like, I'll show them that this is what they actually look like. And it just, it's just terrible. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's difficult to tell from the tone whether this is a thing about, yeah, like, hey, we're women. This is what we're really, we don't have to conform to what society wants us to be beautiful and to feel good about ourselves. Or if it's someone saying, look at these feminists with all the hair all over their body, look how gross they are. I really can't tell the tone is so weird and the signals are so mixed i don't know what this movie is doing i don't think anybody does that's the problem yeah it's just really unfortunate too because we never really get a female all female cast quite like this you know like this movie there's not a lot of guys in it and that's kind of rare in hollywood too and it's sad that it wasn't a good movie and that they couldn't use all this talent to produce something worthwhile these people all got a shot with this and then it belly flops so i just feel kind of bad for the for the actresses involved in this but i also feel like yeah gus van sant did not do them justice whatsoever but what's also astounding is like this movie didn't end any careers like gus van sant as we're talking about had like a huge career for this the next year uma thurman was in pulp fiction keanu's in more stuff lorraine brocco goes on to land the sopranos like nobody here like it's like it's like nobody saw this movie because nobody was like, yeah, but you were in Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. So, like, I don't know if you're right for this part. It's almost like this is just like sort of like a everybody got like a free pass on this one. Oh, we know that it was all bad, but like nobody took the brunt. Maybe the author, because this is the only credit he has on IMDb as a writer, is that like nothing else he's ever written. I don't know if he's written other books, but nothing else he's ever written has ever been adapted into anything. So... Maybe, like, his career, his aspirations for Hollywood ended, but, I mean, nobody else in behind the camera or in front of the camera seems to have suffered any ill effects from this movie. Yeah, the only explanation is that no one saw it. I mean, <laughs> either that or they went around and bought up every copy. And they're not reprinting this on Blu-ray, I'll tell you that. The DVD is nearly out of print due to, I'm guessing, just due to how expensive it was to obtain. And I was also complaining to Mike earlier in the green room, as Chris likes to call it, that this DVD cost $15 new. And this is like the worst movie that we've watched so far. It's so expensive, relatively speaking, and now I just own it. I own it forever, and I'm never, ever, ever going to watch it again. This movie is, it reminds me of movies that, there were a few of these in the early 90s that are these, I'm, I'm making a bunch of scare quotes with my fingers right now, comedies that were actually just like these waking horrendous nightmares like uh, Nothing But Trouble with Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase or uh, Stay Tuned with John Ritter that this one isn't quite as terrifying as those but it's just as unfunny and just as mind-melting. 
Well, what's weird is the last movie that we did is Freaked, and we were sort of talking about it earlier, and if anybody listened to this one, listened to our last episode, we loved Freaked, and I feel like both these movies, in a way, and sort of, you know, like Nothing But Trouble, or the other one you mentioned, there's people who are going to watch these movies, and for whatever reason, they're going to get fully on board. And if you're fully on board, like, I can see this being somebody's favorite movie, you know, because, like, there's so much weirdness going on that, like, if it hits you in the right way you're going to love it. But, like, for most people, I just don't see this working. Like, nothing but trouble is terrible. I mean, Freaked, if people weren't having as much fun with Freaked as they were, that would be just as bad, if not worse, than this movie. It's this era, like, you know, I guess the early to mid-90s, right, where just people just made weird indie. Yeah, yeah. Independent cinema just was running rampant. You know, Hollywood and investors were just throwing money at filmmakers hoping for well next year we'd get Pulp Fiction you know so like they were looking for the next Soderbergh the next Tarantino the next hot young guy and everything and Gus Van Sant you know established name in the indie arena already at this point so yeah an investor I could see thinking he needs money to make a movie he's bankable in this climate I'm gonna back him but the problem is you give free reign to an indie director on like his fourth feature he's gonna go off the reservation to a degree like you still need to watch over the process and manage your investment and it just seems like someone was like here's money go make a crazy wacky movie do whatever you want it's not gonna matter it's it's the mid 90s you know like crazy shit's coming out every week because i feel like the difference between this one and my own private idaho is that when he was making that he saw that playing nationally and so i think he didn't want it like because i mean it was he he had these visions of it that you know because it was being distributed by a major studio that he had this idea that like you know, everybody's going to see it and they were going to associate his name with it. And like, it seemed like he cared more. And then this, I mean, not that $8 million is not, it's, it, I mean, it's, good, it's a lot of money, but like in the grand scheme of things, I guess not that much. I don't know. But like, I feel like he just like, oh, like nobody's going to see this. Like I can just make it weird. It just feels like he had like less care and less thought about what this finished product was going to look like once people actually saw it. And then they had to edit it down and all that difference. Can you imagine this movie like 15 minutes longer? Like that's close to two hours. Like I cannot... Ooh. That's an endurance test. Yeah, this definitely is his experimental phase. I think I could safely say that, where he's just like, let's try this, let's try that, let's just do it, see if it works. If it doesn't work, fuck it. Like, I'm going to make another movie after this. And I think ultimately that's my take on it, is he's experimenting, there's no form, he's just whatever, let's just, what I'm thinking today, let's just shoot it and print it and cut it, release it, fine. On to the next one. Chris, do you have any last thoughts about Even Cowgirls, aside from the fact that you hated it and there's nothing redeemable about it? Well, I have a thought about a movie that I would have rather been watching. And I'm just going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to recommend this movie to people who are, who are listening. Because I feel like it's, if, if you want a movie that is a coming-of-age story about a young woman figuring out her sexuality, and it's quirky, and it's indie, and it's stylized, check out the movie, but I'm a cheerleader. Natasha Lyonne plays a girl who gets sent to a, uh, a gay conversion camp, and RuPaul is the leader of it. And it's a very self-aware, very funny, like I said, perky indie comedy that has, I feel like, a lot of these themes and a lot of the style that this movie was almost going for, except this movie succeeds where even cowgirls get the blues failed in every imaginable way. What year did that movie come out, roughly? 1999. Okay. And I picked this fucking movie 
because one of my favorite bands, the Gaslight Anthem, has a song called Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, and I didn't know anything about this movie. I was like, oh, I know that name. That's a cool cast. That's actually my least favorite Gaslight Anthem song, so I should have known coming into this <laughs> that this would suck. I just didn't, I didn't see the signs, and I'm so sad. You didn't listen to your heart. You didn't listen to your soul. Mike, do you have any last thoughts? I just wish this movie worked. I wish it was a better movie because I think there kind of needs to be more movies like this. Like, I'm going to check out, but I'm a cheerleader. There's just, you know, we talk all the time about opportunity for women in Hollywood and these mostly male-dominated movies that we watch and stuff. So in that regard, I was really had my fingers crossed for this. And it's just unfortunate that this was the end product because I just feel like we all deserve more or better like I just felt like this movie shouldn't have been made but this cast should have been appropriated for another script yeah it's just too bad I like the score I'll just throw that out there as the one positive Katie Lang did it yeah if my ears weren't filled with the blood leaking out of my head I think I would have enjoyed been able to hear it and enjoyed it more but there's some good moments of score in this movie on the Wikipedia page, there's in the critical reception part, there's a quote from Leonard Malton about how the book was hopelessly dated, which is why I was asking when it was printed. I mean, the, the book's 20 years old almost by the time the movie comes out. He said the book was hopelessly dated and like had really little chance of ever being adapted well, but that the one shining beacon of positivity in this movie was the score. So you and Leonard Malton agree. We also like terrible movie puns, so... There you go. All I know is that the next movie we're doing is Little Buddha, which I know nothing about, but then two movies from now is Speed. So there's been a couple movies since we've had Keanu in like a really big-budget Hollywood movie, so we're going to have another one coming up soon, and I'm very excited to see Speed again because I love Sandra Bullock like I'm a middle-aged woman. So very excited to see Speed sort of entering the mid-to-late-90s resurgence action Keanu part. Let's get out of this like cameo weirdness spell of his career. Yeah, who knew that this part of his career existed where he would go right from Point Break to making these rando cameos in his friend's indie features. It's so strange. I never would have imagined. Well, because if you look at like what he did, he did Point Break, which is a huge action movie. Then he did another Bill and Ted. And then he did a real solid indie in My Own Private Idaho. But then he goes into this like old-timey Dracula and Much Ado. And then he goes at cameos and Freaked and this. And then he's in whatever Little Buddha is. Like, it just, I mean, there's like a three or four year stretch there. It's just like, it's just weird. And I feel like we're going to have another stretch of these, like, in the mid 2000s. Like, I just don't know what he did. Basically, between The Replacements and Constantine, like, there's like 10 things in there. And I just, like, there's things I've heard of, but, like, I don't know what these things are. Yeah, I barely know what he's done between Matrix 1 and Matrix 2. So I look forward to seeing if there's any more weird divergence. We will see. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for joining us on this episode. You'll be back for, oh, Fat Keanu in The Watcher. Yeah, as you guys were talking about that weird error you didn't know about, I was just thinking, man, Fat Serial Killer Keanu. I'll be back for that. Early 2017. So Chris hosts, as I said at the top, Now and Again podcast, which is going back in time, reliving nostalgia and his youth through the music of Now That's What I Call Music. And you can also catch him on Monkey Club. And who knows what kind of monkey shenanigans are up this month, but they're probably terrible, terrible movies. Because that seems to be the theme consistent with Monkey Club. Watch terrible movies with monkeys and just talk about it. Can't be worse than this, though. In fact, I don't think there Can't has be been. worse than this. You'd think so, but I don't think we've seen anything on there worse than this. I mean, I feel like this is missing a monkey. Like, if a monkey was a main character in this movie, it would have been excellent. I can also see Pat Morita having like a monkey just sitting on his shoulder the entire movie just mm-hmm. because 
you know, why not? Yeah. Because it's weird. Because it's weird. And, like, weird is funny, guys. Yeah, the weirder, the funnier. So for all things weird and funny and Keanu Club, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can find all the podcasts that we do, episodes that we've done already, episodes that are coming up, all sorts of fun things at those two places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Chris Mattiello, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. In-